Welcome to Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. We're back. Today we're talking about the recent turmoil in the oil markets and what it means for the future of renewable energy. I'm John Belazaire. I'm going to be your host today, and I am the CEO of Saluna, for those of you who don't know who I am. And with me today is Phil Ung, Vice President of Corporate Development of Saluna, and he'll be my co-host today. Welcome, Phil. Hey, John and listeners. We also have two distinguished guests with us today. We have Sanjeev Kumar. He is a member of Saluna's Board of Advisors, and he is an energy veteran. He has over 20 plus years of experience in global energy markets, including alternative energy. And Sanjeev has been on our podcast before and shared some of his experiences launching Enphase and Terraform, two renewable energy firms that he helped to take through successful IPOs. Welcome to the show, Sanjeev. Thank you, John. And finally, we also have Bill Hayes with us. Bill is the former head of legal and external affairs for Cosmos Energy. Cosmos Energy is a leading oil exploration and production company with operations in a dozen countries, including Ghana, Mauritania, and Senegal. Bill led the company through a successful IPO and helped guide the company's expansion across the continent in a socially responsible way. He's also a star in the movie Big Men, a documentary film about the discovery and commercialization of oil in Ghana, a first in the country's history. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. So, gents, today is all about education. We want to learn from you about how, you know, all this interest and everything that's been happening in, in the oil sector. You know, we're recording this during a pandemic. It's a period where oil is kind of in a strange place. There's been massive destruction by any regard in value, demand, and jobs. According to Roboto Boca, a member of the executive committee of the World Economic Forum, he suggests we have an opportunity here to use this crisis to reset the energy order to make it more of a sustainable one going forward. I think that will be the backdrop for a lot of what we talk about. But first, we want to talk about the energy business, talk a bit about you guys, your background, and how you got into this business. Bill, let's start with you. How did you get into the energy business? Thanks, John. Uh, well, I was actually born and raised and educated in Houston, Texas, so that should answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, a third generation, I had a grandfather who worked for an oil company, another one sold oil field equipment. My father was a petroleum geologist. And I went to law school in Texas and came out thinking, well, what else do you do when you live in Houston, Texas? And sure enough, energy was booming at the time in the early 80s. Hmm. And so I thought that'd be a pretty good thing to do would be join a law firm in Houston and start doing energy work, traditional oil and gas work, which is what I did. And again, that was back in, at, at that time was a big boom in, the, in Houston. Houston was booming. That was when a lot of people were moving from the east and northeast to Houston. The Sun Belt was, was growing rapidly and oil and, and gas were the, the future of the of the um, for job markets, et cetera. So that's how I got into it. Then, you know, parlayed the, the left the law firm and went to work for an independent and then spent my next, uh, I guess, 20 so years working in-house counsel for various companies, whether it's in Cairo, Houston, Dallas, or London. Mm. What caused that boom in Houston and Texas in general, I guess? I guess a couple of factors. If you recall, what was going on in the world at the time was coming out of the Jimmy Carter administration. Hmm. And really, the Nixon administration established price controls on oil and gas. Hmm. And then Carter introduced the Natural Gas Policy Act, which then also set price controls on gas at different levels. So gas was priced anywhere from $15 in MCF to, I think, $3 or maybe 
maybe old, old gas uh, might have been 50 cents an MCF, but there was a huge incentive to look for this stuff. Oil had a price between $3. It was also set fairly high at the time, and I don't remember exactly, but let's say $15 or $20. And on top of that, you had the tax code, which incentivized people to drill dry holes, frankly. Uh, you, if you were hmm. a dentist or a lawyer, you could invest in an oil and gas deal, have, have an immediate write-off that year. And if it was a dry hole, you got your you, Uncle Sam paid part of the dry hole for you. And if it was successful, then all the better you were successful. So Houston really became quite, kind of a magical place back in the late 70s. And mm-hmm. in the 80s, there was the oil embargo in the late 70s. Price of oil skyrocketed back then. And so everybody was really trying to get into the oil business. And there was a lot of a lot going on. And then Reagan decontrolled oil, the price of oil, fairly early in his administration. And the whole thing mm. began to collapse. And that's when one of the first busts that I had in my career, I think we're now on bus number five, mm-hmm. my career happened in sort of the early part of the, 80, the 1980s. Wow. And is this, is this around the same time? Well, two things, right? One, the U.S. started this whole platform around energy security and due to what was going on in the 70s, I, I imagine. And the second was fracking. Is that right? No, the, the fracking didn't come along until probably the late 19, mid-1990s up in the mm. Fort Worth area. That's really where it got started, the mid-1990s, I'd say, or early 1990s when fracking right. started. So this was all pre-fracking, actually. Wow. This was really driven by, again, kind of adverse financial incentives in the tax code, price of oil, which was continuing to go up and up and up. There was mm-hmm. no, no tomorrow. And then Again, a scarcity of world supplies of oil at the time because the uh, the Middle East was so uncertain for oil supplies, mm-hmm. and, and Houston was the place to be to have all this going on. So it was it was kind of a synergy of a lot of different events came together. This perfect storm, which made Houston. And I remember moving back there after mm-hmm. law school in '80, and it was just it was crazy. There was traffic everywhere, helicopters oh, wow. flying all over the place. Money was no object. The firm I was with, we represented a bunch of crude oil resellers, and they were trading old oil at three bucks for new oil at $18 a barrel. In these trades, you could make significant amounts of income. And the regulations were not quite put together then. Uh, So there's a lot of guys making a lot of money at the time. Right. That's awesome. Did you ever watch the show Dallas? Yes. Yeah. Were they, were they, they were, were they an oil family? I, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> it was Ewing Oil Company. Yeah, in fact. Yes, it was. It was. It, there was an oil family. Okay, got it. Yeah. Probably the most harmful thing that ever happened to the oil business. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, my, my, my parents were huge fans of that show. It's, so I became a huge fan. Like every Friday, you know, we would get together and that was like the family show, you know? So, yeah. It was a terrible show. It made it look like it was easy. They are. And yeah, <laughs> JR, and, and they had these horrible people running oil companies that made it look like that's how everyone behaved. And it's not quite the, yeah. quite true. Yeah, that was a terrible show. <laughs> so you alluded to, you know, this fifth, fifth bust, you know, having lived through the, you know, the booms and the and the busts of, of this industry. What's your biggest learning throughout your career to date? Give us, you know, a, a handful of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it seems like since I'm still sort of involved in it, having just left Cosmos a month ago, uh, I mm-hmm. haven't learned about booms and busts. <laughs> you think I <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're still learning, yeah. I'd finally figure that out. This this, this does come around because it, it does. It's, I, I think it's the fourth or fifth one in my in my career since 1980, which is crazy. Right. But I think, right. I think the two, I mean, to me, I was, two big things for me having now worked oil and gas, both domestically, you know, at the very small scale in Texas, for example, where you're sitting on a drilling rig with the various employees and staff who are, you know, reading instruments and seeing things 
seeing how this stuff works actually physically on the ground, which is fascinating, to being an African sitting across the table from ministers of energy and, and, and negotiating contracts to being flown offshore into giant oil rigs. You just mm. realize how complex this business is. And there's almost, mm. to my mind, no industry as complex as this one is. So it's how do you get... Mm. You know, if you start at your gasoline pump and you stick it in your car and you think, well, it's, you know, it's three bucks a gallon, it sounds terrible. If you were to backtrack that all the way to West Africa or even West Texas, right. it is an amazing industry that gets that gallon of gasoline into your car. So that's that's one thing. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredibly complex, and I don't think people really have an understanding of that. And I always found it ironic when people or the you know the the public objects to new pipelines. And I get why. I understand there's environmental issues and those need to be taken care of. And I understand there's indigenous issues as well. And then there are those who simply don't want more pipelines for more fossil fuels. But if you actually mm -hmm. looked at a map of the United States and realized where pipelines currently are, you'd mm -hmm. be shocked. Many of them run under neighborhoods. Many of them run under metropolitan areas that no one even knows about them. So that's the sort of complex. There's a really nice neighborhood in Houston, for example, that has a boulevard right down the middle of it. And the reason the boulevard was built there is because Humble Oil had an existing had an existing pipeline, which comes all the way from West Texas to its Baytown refinery that runs through the neighborhood. But no one wow. that. gets Never the third that. Carrying hot crude oil every day, 24 hours a day. Amazing. The other thing I think has always fascinated me is the technology. Just when you think the lights are going out on the business, or now we've seen the sort of the twilight of the ability to produce oil and gas, somehow technology always comes around. And to me, one example of that is fracking, obviously. We have out in West Texas, oil that's been producing for over 100 years out there, but it was getting pretty marginal coming out of sandstones and Cretaceous reservoirs, which are not shale, so to speak. And suddenly, now we can go in and, and frack, hydraulic fracture, shale formations, which as I grew up, was impossible to even understand. You can't even believe it because it's like taking a block of cement and seeing mm -hmm. it and thinking, well, there must be oil in there. And then fracturing it, and sure enough, there is oil in there, captured in there somehow. So fracking obviously saved the domestic business for a while at least. But going back in time, you had Howard Hughes invent the rotary, or his father invent the rotary drilling bit in the 20s. You then had two-dimensional seismic, which is a huge thing they could run seismic across South Louisiana or South Texas and find these giant underground anticlines or formation-looking things, these big bubbles, and think, well, that's a pretty good place to drill. And sure enough, it was. Then next came the offshore phase where you put drilling rigs on barges and then later platforms and later floatable drilling rigs. The 2D, 2D seismic back in the late 80s, I think, became three-dimensional seismic. Well, no one ever thought about that. Then you get a three-dimensional view of the underground which vastly improves your ability to find trapped oil that you may have overlooked or mm -hmm. explore for new oil. So almost at every turn, again, it's where you sort of think, okay, we've, we've kind of done everything. It looks like oil is actually a finite resource, which although it ultimately is, you begin to wonder after a while. Technology comes along and saves the business, and here's a new way to do it. And I think that's those are sort of the two things mm -hmm. to me. The absolute immense and hard to grasp complexity and then the amount of technology that has comes along every once in a while and, and gives a new lease on life, if you will, to the business. Awesome. Bill, thanks for that tour. Sure. Sanjeev, how about you? How'd you get into the energy business? I, unlike Bill, I got into the energy business in an unlikely place called Los Angeles. <laughs> Isn't that the movie business? <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought. Space business, apparently, and now it's a space place, yeah. Until I learned of a company called Occidental Petroleum in LA. So I joined Oxy 
I think during the, uh, the, the, the bust period that Bill just talked about in early 90s, when I think Wall was low teens. So I joined Oxy. Uh, Dr. Armand Hammer, the, the founder of the company, had just passed away. We had a new chairman. And the company was uh, restructuring itself. So it was an interesting opportunity for me to get in. The company was getting out of a lot of businesses. It had like coal technology and a bunch of other businesses and focusing more heavily on international oil and gas. So one of the areas where I actually ended up spending quite a bit of time on was in West Africa. So I spent about 10 years and uh, realized that oil will never go higher than $20. So I left the industry in 2000 and actually got into renewable industry. And for mm-hmm. the past uh, 15, uh, 20 years, I've been focused on the renewable industry, uh, just doing everything from solar, wind, hydrogen, fuel cells, and the kind of innovation Bill just talked about in the oil and gas sector. It's it's really interesting to see all that play out on the renewable side. What would you say your, your big learnings were during the past couple of decades uh, in the industry? I think the, the, the learnings is about technolo- technology innovation Bill talked about. It's about cost reduction. The mm. thing that I learned about the renewable industry was it was a as much about technology as it was about getting the cost down. And people were focused very heavily on technology and just trying to get the best technological solution until you realize that if you could take a technology, invest enough money on it, build it to scale, build up the demand, and that's how you make it uh, commercialized. And that's how we Mm. saw, you know, some of the early solar technologies that came about were not the 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 most you know the the best technology the most efficient of its time, but it was a technology that management determined could be commercialized and they got the cost down to the level where it became cost competitive. Very interesting. I think that's a really good point, Sanji, because that's one I, I overlooked. But you're right. As the price of oil began to fall, companies realized to keep production up, they better find a, a cheaper way to produce it, in other words. And you're right, technology was sort of thrown at things from time to time, and yet the cost kept rising, and it took these boom-bust cycles to teach the industry, you can still do this, but you have to do it in a much, much less expensive way, while at the same time maintaining self, safety, health, and, and environmental principles. So mm-hmm. in particular, we've seen that, I think, in spades since the last you know, last sort of mini-bust in 2016 when a lot of the shale players were knocked out those that survived were able to capitalize on on figuring out ways to do it much cheaper and much quicker. Yeah. And my last gig in the industry was really with a company that uh, we provided a solar solution to the oil and gas industry. So our customers were oil and gas companies. And that was really interesting for me to see this come back full circle where, you know, we were selling solutions to the oil industry for reducing their carbon footprint. So it was really interesting for me to see for the past three, four years how the, the, the commitment to renewables has moved away from pure PR to mm. the companies, the oil and gas industry, recognizing that renewable has to become an integral part of their solution, whether it's, mm. whether it's the pressure from the shareholder groups, uh, the, the focus on the ESG investing, but most importantly, I think as the energy industry transitions, the um, the oil and gas companies are realizing that it's only a matter of time before renewable becomes 
so cost competitive that the two will have to merge to to generate the the energy of the future. Mm. So interesting, yeah. So you you get the innovation cycle that's happening in oil is continuing to happen, but now you're integrating future energy technology as part of the production of this what many hope to be a legacy energy source. That's it, pretty interesting. Yeah, and you are seeing that you are seeing a Almost all the major oil and gas companies, of course, the, the ones that are more visible are the, the shells of this world, but they are setting up as separate groups which are focused on the renewable and then incorporating renewable in their mm-hmm. operations. At the end of the day, you know, the oil and gas companies also want to make a commercial decision. They, they want to make sure they get the right return on their investment. And that's where you are beginning to see the innovation coming out of the oil and gas industry um, towards the renewable sector. Well, great. That's a great tour, Sanjeev, and, and, and very insightful. I want to take us back to sort of the current state of affairs, the oil crisis that is underway. We're recording this early June, the first day of June here. And so most of the world has either just begun to think about reopening their economies and releasing people from self-quarantine or sheltered home type setups or lockdown, we like to call it in New York. And as a result, you know, there's some sense that perhaps demand will return for fuel and energy and so forth. But if you rewind the movie, you've had some pretty catastrophic effects on the industry. And at some point, there was a headline where they said the oil futures went negative. What does that mean? And how, how does one interpret that? Bill, could you take us like start from like the floating platform that's that's digging a well under the water and take us through all the way to like what creates this headline? <laughs> is this is the seven-hour version? <laughs> uh, no, yeah, but no, uh, I'm kidding, no. Um, yeah, no. It's this is a this is an incredibly great question, and, and I think it's one that'll be written about for years. Which is how did this happen? How do we get to this where you have on the one hand, um, as you know, Saudi Arabia and OPEC or OPEC plus agreeing mm-hmm. to um, open the throttles open the chokes on production and and mm-hmm. increase the price to market at the same time or shortly thereafter you had the world economy tank completely around the world and had demand decrease by oh i don't know five six million eight million nine million barrels a day worldwide which is a lot mm. so yeah how did how did we get here i think the crude oil trading on the exchanges obviously makes a difference. And there were a lot of speculators involved in that. And I guess you've read some of the, some of the uh, various funds have decided not to get into the oil crude trading anymore, but it went negative because you have someone who was hedging their crude. Perhaps Mm -hmm. they were kind of waiting till the end of the market or sorry, contract expiry. And lo and behold, (laughs) the price didn't get up to what they thought it was. And they had physical barrels they needed to get rid of. So it wasn't necessarily just a paper loss. They actually had to pay someone to take the crude off their hands. Now, I know that's a simplistic way of looking at it, but that's essentially what happened in certain situations. The minute the contract expired uh, back in first part of May, then the, the market recalibrated and went back to a more slightly normal stance where the price was in the you know 20s or something like that for West Texas Intermediate. Mm. So you've got a producer in West Texas, say he's making 100 barrels a day, He's selling into a pipeline. Uh, he's either selling it at the wellhead to the pipeline owner or the pipeline's selling it later on to maybe a refiner. But it's but everybody along the chain may be hedging their production. Hmm. Yet 
they were running out of storage at, at one of the main storage places in Cushing, Oklahoma, where WTIs physically traded, so to speak. And mm-hmm. that was becoming full. And there was no place to go with it. So oil was backing up in the pipelines and people had to make good on their contracts, uh, on their their contracts for not only the physical delivery, but also the financial contracts they had maybe with the, with the exchanges. So it was mm-hmm. kind of a, I'd say, a, needless to say, a very unique event. We had $37 below zero oil. That's unheard of. And it was sort of a one-day event. I'm not sure it'll happen again, although it, it could. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's created a lot of havoc in the industry. And I think we've now sort of since then, at least a month on, have kind of leveled it out a bit. And it looks like the markets have, have again, reached some sort of normal or semi-normal equilibrium on production and demand, although demand is still greatly off. Yeah, I think you had a perfect, perfect storm. You had the uh, what Bill described the dynamics with Saudi and uh, and Russia, and then you had a demand destruction of a scale which we haven't seen before, and globally. So, like Bill said, you have all these ships that are full. The storage is all full, and there is no place to transport the oil. There's no demand for oil, and you know oil is a hazardous material, so you just can't dump it. So. You got to pay somebody to take the oil and, and store it, take it off your hands for a while. And it's interesting, you have the, so that was for the May delivery, I believe, when yeah. the prices went below zero. And then if you looked out at the future prices in June, it was back to $30. So it was one of those anomalies, probably once in a lifetime event. Right. I have this vision in my head that if you drove around, I don't know, Houston or Oklahoma, you would see swimming pools filled with crude oil or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's probably. Yeah. I think. I do think there was temporary storage. I mean, you're not far off. <laughs> like old fracking trucks where you could hold liquids that were, you know, were sealed. People were putting oil in that. Yeah, that's what I had heard. Yeah. Wow. So for the listeners, this concept that there's real oil delivery. Like if somebody buys oil at some point, the barrel shows up, <laughs> and then there's all sorts of financial instruments that trade that buying and selling, but ultimately. They hope they never have to take delivery, right? So if I'm if I'm sitting in New York <laughs> and I'm trading this stuff, hopefully I hope a truck's not showing up and trying to drop off crude oil. But at some point, there was such a demand issue that, or a lack of demand issue that ultimately it was going to show up unless we stored it someplace, right? I'm afraid so. Yeah, that's correct. Because I think, and I do think, I don't know anyone specifically or personally that had this problem, but I do have heard of small producers in Texas that actually were selling oil at a loss just to get it so they could continue to pump the oil out of the ground or have the wells not shut in. Sort of Mm. acknowledge that, okay, next month or the day after this contract expires, we'll sort of be back to normal again. But I've got a tank here with 5,000 barrels of oil. I'm willing to let it go for minus five bucks just to clear it off off my property so I can continue to produce this oil, I guess. Mm. But yeah, that definitely happens in the the financial market markets. You normally clear your contracts out. You know That's why the oil prices tend to gyrate towards the end of the contract trading period. Got it. And from the oil producer's perspective, the last thing they want to do is shut a plant down, right? If, if they're drilling and the pipeline is pumping, last thing you want to do is turn that thing off. It's not exactly something you want to Correct. Not like a TV, you turn on, turn on and off kind of thing. It's not like your water tap. No, exactly. I mean, you, yeah. could, be, you could have a well that's, let's say, producing well, anyway, a thousand barrels a day and you think, you know, well, let's shut it in. You can shut mm-hmm. it in for 30 days or 10 days, but will it come back at a thousand barrels a day? 
I mean, you hope you so. just don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It may not. That's the danger. Hmm. Right. Interesting. And, you know, what's I think what's looking back again historically, I think crude oil trading financially began sort of in the early 80s and on the New York Exchange and the Chicago Board of Trade. And prior to that, oil companies set the prices. So if you, if Saluna had a field out in West Texas, you'd call up Phillips Petroleum or Exxon or Shell who were buying in the area and say, okay, what are you giving me for May? And they'd say, well, we'll give you three twenty-five a barrel. Okay, thank you. Call the next one. We're giving you three twenty-seven a barrel plus five cents. Okay. And that was called the posted field price. And producers mm. thought, this is great. We, we know this business. And then when trading started, there was a lot of uncertainty if you were an oil and gas operator or producer because some mm-hmm. guys in New York or Chicago were now setting the price of your crude oil. Well, that sounds terrible. But it mm. worked for a couple of years until you had some tumult in the markets and then there was a hue and cry from the oil industry, the independents saying, get rid of financial trading crude oil, it's killing our business. So depending on boom versus bust, there's winners and losers on both sides. Wow. Now, has this, have, guys, has this ever happened before? Is this truly a first? I've never seen oil go negative on the markets. That's, to my knowledge, that's a first. I don't know about you, Sanji. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, we've seen some big gyrations, but I don't recall oil going negative. Yeah. I think wow. the last time I saw, I think it was in the late 90s, I want to say 98 or 99, when oil was in, in the U.S., or maybe even worldwide, was nine bucks a barrel. And that's when everyone predicted the end of the oil industry. It's, it's over. And but it's, a, you know, it's, it's more of a financial contract. It really, the fundamentals of the demand supply prices didn't really change significantly from going from May into June. Correct. But it was that, like Bill described, it was that, you know, the settlement of that contract, that financial, that paper, you know, it was a it was a negative on paper. And it was a very short lived event. And of course oil prices are back up to mid thirties. Interesting. You know, when you look at demand, which is part of what's driving the you know, the pricing issue, right? You've got most people think of oil demand, they think of gasoline in their cars. You know, my neighbors saying you know, they're, they're getting out of New York City. It's summer. They're going to go to their, they've got a home in Colorado. And I said, how are you guys getting there? Are you guys flying? They said, actually, no, we're going to, we're going to drive cross country. <laughs> and so I think that's a first where people, you know, people aren't comfortable flying. You guys have a sense of sort of how the oil demand kind of breaks out if you had a pie chart among all the different sources and uses, if you will, of the commodity? I don't off the top of my head. I know jet fuel is, I think, 7%, um, mm-hmm. but gasoline mm-hmm. is, must be pretty high. I mean, just transportation altogether, excluding jet fuel. So you'd have diesel, yep. gasoline must be pretty in the high 20%, I would think. Yeah, what I've seen is like sort of mid-20s for cars and roads, you know, the road traffic, planes. Yeah, you're right, about just under 10%. And then the rest apparently is all sorts of oil byproducts, petrochemicals, that sort of thing that make the bulk of the demand. Yep. And, you know, agriculture's generally still operating, although there's been some reduction in that because it's hard to drive crop harvesting right now. And, um, but lots of, lots of industries use, you know, byproducts that result from the refineries and so forth to drive that. And that, that's probably what is still driving the price besides, you know, what else is happening in the economy or perspectives on where it's going. But I don't think you're going to see a huge jump back in terms of overall demand across all the different sectors, especially transportation and things like that. What do you guys think? I I think from oil, you know, that's right. Oil is mostly transportation. 
and industrial use, uh, the refined products that come out of in the in the chemical industry. From mm-hmm. an electricity perspective, we have kind of switched more to to gasoline uh, to to natural gas. So there's less of oil being burned to producing electricity, and more of gas. And um, you know the the thing about the the demand for oil is that until we find a substitute for oil, the reality is that it really depends on how quickly can the economies develop. You know, traditionally, before the pandemic, if you had about 100 million barrels, give or take, of oil production and 100 million barrels of consumption, it only took a few million barrels of disruption to for the prices to be extremely volatile. So the the question becomes that you know the 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 supply side of the oil is is a little bit easier to predict than the demand side, and that depends on how quickly can the economies recover after the pandemic. Hmm. No, that's interesting. Phil, you wrote an article recently on shale, and you cleverly compared it to the cryptocurrency mining business or the blockchain space. And you know what parallels did you see there, and why, and how does that relate to my demand question I just posed to the gentleman here. Yeah. So I think the way that I thought about this and the 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 observation that I noticed was as I followed the sort of bust in the oil markets and this huge drop in demand that was sort of one time and unexpected and sudden, it reminded me of the collapse in crypto prices in 2018 and as I had followed very carefully the struggles and financial difficulty that a lot of these cryptocurrency, publicly traded cryptocurrency miners were facing. With regards to similarities, you know, I noticed a couple of things. One, your product is uniform and commoditized. So I don't really care who I buy my Bitcoin from. Uh, I just want it. Like a shale producer, the productivity from your installed asset declines quickly. So you sort of have a race to get the oil out of the ground and and get your payback quickly. And then shale producers tend to be the marginal producers. They can jump on and off very quickly. And so I think what the analysis that I did was really to inform this cryptocurrency mining community, what are the tactics and what are the things that shale producers have done to prepare themselves for the downturn? And what lessons can we take from that? So that's sort of the backdrop to what started this conversation and why we think understanding it is super relevant for Saluna, apart from the pure energy impacts. And I guess with regards to that, one of the questions that I had for Bill was, you know, I watched that movie Big Men recently and I noticed one of the shots, you guys had a plastic barrel of oil sitting in your office that said something like, don't worry, the price will go back up again. And I think one of the questions that I had for you was, what lessons are you taking from the market right now, either for show producers or just more generally? And you know, what advice would you provide to operators and investors in the space? And can we generalize those as rules for other commodities that tend to be quite volatile? Yeah, no, that's good questions. And I, I think uh, your article on the cryptocurrencies comparison with Shale was very interesting in terms of the eight or nine similarities, which I thought was great. I guess the yeah, the biggest issue is and, and Sanjeev was hitting on this earlier, which is is demand. When will demand return? And as we know it's down in the mm-hmm. low ninety nineties million per barrel per day worldwide. As the world reopens, you know, across the globe, demand will increase. And I was looking at the EIA 
predict next year to 2021, the average will be 99 million barrels of oil a day. So that's back where we were in less in right about a year, which is kind of interesting. Oh, that prediction is a uh, post post COVID. Yeah, post- it, 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 it includes COVID. Yeah, exactly. So they see nine. So they see the average this year is 92.6 million barrels a day, which is again about seven million off where we were. And next mm-hmm. year, back up another, call it six million barrels a day. So that we've kind of got the the loss back up again within the by the end of 2021 on an average basis, which I found mm-hmm. sort of startling. But I guess if you think about it. And that sort of assumes that we can get these economies back on track, right? I mean, if you look at the American economy right now, it's not great with 40 million unemployed. Are we assured that by this time next year, we'll be at full employment, not full employment, but sort of hitting on all cylinders again? I'm not so sure about that. But I think specifically, I think the terms of operators, it's a little different from Bitcoin guys, obviously. They've, they've got the transportation issue, uh, which we saw come to quite clear this year in the United States, where if you were offshore somewhere in the world and you had a tanker pull up, you were a little bit better off in selling your product than if you were out in West Texas or in the Rocky Mountains and couldn't get your product into a pipeline. And and I think some of may perhaps some of the external variations are actually worse for the oil industry. And I think that's a couple of things. One, to survive, you have to hedge your crude or a big part of it to ensure that you've got the cash flow to maintain operations. And then I mm-hmm. think you've as we talked, touched on before, you've got to get lean and mean on your OPEX and on your CAPEX. And I don't think anyone in the business today will, would admit that they predicted, or you know, without lying, that they predicted this sort of double black swan event would occur. So there's no way mm-hmm. to prepare for this. But there, but there are ways to prepare for commodity cycles. And we've, as I said, I've seen four or five in my career. And so they do occur. And so the question is, how do you prepare? And I think one of the ways is hedging. And the other is you just run a very lean uh, operation. And when times are good, as Sanjay kind of talked about earlier, the tendency is to to amp up and increase costs and expenses on technology or more employees or the, the best of this and the best of that. And it's it's now time to understand that less is more in the industry and we need to look at the downside financially and therefore that's the hedge. And Bill, I don't know what your views are, but another big factor I think that's going to come into play, especially for the shale players, how quickly can they restart their operations will be the availability of capital. You know, unfortunately, the the oil and gas sector has not been the best. It's one of the worst performing sectors, actually, of the other investment class. And again, couple that with the pressure that the banks have to reduce or limit their lending into the oil and gas sector, you know, the availability of capital will be another Another big factor, and how expensive will that capital be for some of the shale players to start resume their uh, their production when the oil prices do stabilize? Yeah, I think that's a huge question. And, and yeah, will they be able to uh, maintain operations out of cash flow? I don't know. Some will, but will they be able to grow out of cash flow at thirty five dollars a barrel? I doubt it. I think you're right about. There was a tremendous amount of capital provided by private equity firms the last ten years in the shale business. And I think that appetite is probably gone. There may be in the private equity world or other worlds some sort of funds looking to bottom feed, which may go buy oil and gas properties on the theory that, you know, obviously the commodity will go up eventually. But I think, Sanjeev, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of small and medium-sized independents that will find that their access to capital is either gone or really expensive. And then how? what will that mean for the shale players? And the, it will mean less production over time. Now, let me, let me tag on to that sure. concept here. So let's say 
we've talked a little bit about the operators. If we jump to the other side of the table and think about investors, you've got a, a volatile asset. You've got now essentially two wipeouts in the shale industry within the last four years, 2016, and then another one in 2020. At the same time, you're looking at what Sanji alluded to at the beginning of his introduction, uh, the falling cost of renewable energies as a competitive substitute to a carbon-based economy. I think the cost, of, levelized cost of energy of solar has fallen somewhere about 90% over the last 10 years. And, you know, despite everyone's sort of naysaying, it seems like Elon with his electrification of vehicles is is pushing ahead and some others may follow suit. So how do you do that math as a, if you were uh, the one with the with the checkbook and you're making an analysis onto this industry, how do you gain conviction to put capital at risk? You know, it's, uh, Bill, you want to go first? Should I take it? No, no go ahead. Go ahead. I'm still cogitating. <laughs> so, Phil, <laughs> that that's a really interesting point. Now, if you look at where the returns have been, the returns, the investors are actually flocking to renewable energy because you have more predictability of returns, you have more stability of returns, you don't have that commodity price risk. So interestingly enough, uh, if you if you track what's happened in the last three, four months on the renewable industry, the, 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 the prices came down and came right back up and it's been a pretty good investor class. So there has been more investors kind of in the short term looking at saying, I can actually put my money to work in the renewables and get a bit more stable return and avoid some of the volatility they are seeing on the oil and gas side. So interesting. Bill, you want to comment also? No, I, th- I think I think that's a, I think you've asked the, you know, $64 million question about, yeah. you know, will the investors, is the appetite still, still there for shale plays in the United States? And I just think, um, for the reasons Sanjeev stated, I mean, I think you've you've got to believe you have to come to believe yourself that demand will look, that demand will return, and that the, pr- right. the commodity prices will increase, and therefore make your investment right. And that ties exactly into what you said earlier, Bill. I, I think it's very interesting that this is in the face of what would seem to be some some pretty severe technical limitations in the renewable side. So, despite falling costs, you know, unlike crude, you can't store it. It's not as easy to move across the country or across the world. And there are certain sectors like transportation. We don't have electric aircraft or we can't turn, you know, solar power into into agricultural products. So it seems like over the long term and over the curve, you could make the argument that investors are betting, and I, I know Sanjeev, you you believe this, that investors are betting that those technical limitations will at some point be overcome one way or another. I have seen the prices fall, like you mentioned, 90%. I remember the days when I was with a company back in 2005, 2006, selling solar for, you know, just the panels themselves for $7 a watt. You can have a fully installed system now for 70 cents a watt. So so th- those- That's incredible. You know, that that is happening, and it's happened in the last 10, 15 years. And I think the next holy grail is storage. Uh, like for the reasons you mentioned, Phil, if storage, storage were to become cost competitive, and you have a lot of companies obviously focused on storage, that will be, in my opinion, the inflection point where where oil and gas 
will then start to see what everybody's been talking about, what is the peak price. And But until you have reasonably cost storage that comes along, you're going to be at the whims and gyrations of the, of the markets in terms of the volatility. But but once I think reasonably priced storage comes along, then then you're looking at $30, $35 oil price in the long term. And, and then the producers will have to see whether they can make money at those oil prices. But it's anybody's guess how far away we are. I'm, I'm, I'm probably not two, three years, but I don't think uh, affordable storage is, you know, 20 years away. I, th- I think it's sooner than that. Which leads us to the question whether this whole pandemic and its aftermath is a good thing for renewables. And it, and it sounds like your position on it, Sanjeev, is, and so taking it all the way back to, to Bill's point, is that there's with these cycles comes innovation. And it sounds like, Sanjeev, you're saying because there is just going to be so much pressure to innovate because there's interest from capital to come into, you know, the renewable space, it will be good for clean energy and the growth of, uh, of energy transformation globally. Exactly. Look, capital is going to gravitate where they can get better, more stable, safer returns. And mm-hmm. that is what the renewable industries is starting to offer is that investment mm-hmm. class in the last five years that did not exist before. And you couple that with the governance pressure, the, the pressure for ESG investing, you know, the funds mm-hmm. and, and, and other shareholders are putting a lot of pressure on oil and gas industry to adopt uh, renewables. Uh, so, you know, you, you combine all that plus some government incentives that are still in place that make the renewables, uh, you know, basically juice up the returns on the renewables. So as long as you have that, I think investors are beginning to flock and they're finding it's been a more stable uh, asset class. And that's really what you need. You know, it's the whole cycle. You get more money in and then the adoption, the cost reduction curve is faster and the adoption becomes a lot faster. And I, th- I think mm-hmm. that's where the question is, is the momentum, you know, how fast is the momentum and did the pandemic accelerate that momentum or did it kind of slow that momentum down? Right. How would you compare that, Sanjeev, to, so on one hand, you're, you're seeing, you know, you've done the technical analysis, you're looking at the falling cost of renewables and uh, trends in the battery space and you say, hey, the writing is on the wall here that, you know, carbon and oil has some real serious headwinds to it as an asset class vis-a-vis renewables on one hand. On the other hand, as sort of there, the supply continues to grow and grow relative to the demand, you're, you're pressing costs down. And so now the requirement for renewables is raised. The bar has gone up because the cost of a, of a carbon alternative is higher. That also creates a headwind. So how do you weigh those two against each other? Because, you know, I, I certainly understand your argument, but then you can also just say more simply, if the ch- price of oil is cheaper, it's less likely that people will want to make the transition. Absolutely. Look, that'll be the something interesting to watch with oil prices where they are. You know, here in California, prices at the pump are still hovering around between 250 and $3. But I think in the rest of the country, it's it's come down significantly and it'll be interesting to see what happens with the with the adoption of the electric vehicles. Look, there's mm-hmm. there's already a long way to go. How, how many electric vehicles we have in the in the world today? Maybe less than less than five percent. Maybe less than three percent of the total cars on the road are electric vehicles. So it's not like we're going to flip the switch and everybody's going to be driving 
electric vehicles overnight. But uh, but certainly, I I would assume that the lower oil prices, lower prices at the pump, would certainly make it the economics a bit more competitive for the uh, electric vehicles until unless they can reduce their cost significantly further. Bill, what's your take on it? Does does this whole experience as an oil producer, let's say you're sitting, you're the CEO sitting in your seat and thinking about the next ten years, and you see oil at you know, 35 creeping up, but it was at 60 and creeping up, right? And are you using this opportunity to, you know, go from doubling down on your pledge to look at becoming more green and sustainable as an energy producer? Or are you saying, shoot, we got to, we got to, we got to figure out how to run this business more cost effectively. I'm going to invest my capital and innovations there. What do you think, what do you think these folks are thinking? Uh, I guess it depends on the size of the company and the and the relative stakeholders. I mean, Sanjeev mentioned uh, Shell and you throw BP, Total, and Chevron and the others, the big major companies are all shifting, I'd say pretty rapidly. And I think COVID has probably increased uh, or hastened that shift to one, we've got to reduce our carbon footprint. And two, we need to, we need to diversify our business. We need to now realize that renewables are coming. We don't know how long, or we don't know, when crude oil demand will actually peak, but let's, in the meantime, shift to natural gas, which I think a lot of companies are doing, and let's look at renewables, let's look at electricity generation, other forms, and let's begin to diversify our business, preparing for this. At the same time, throughout the, throughout the business cycle, into the, across the entire industry, reducing the footprint on these various scope one, two, three emissions as much as possible, to become green mm. as much as possible. So I think that's what companies are doing. I don't think you can, I think there'll be some small independents and others in the United States who will say, I'm going to produce oil till, you know, they take it away from me because I do, because as, as Philip said earlier, the price is coming back up. That's the right. one belief of all oil producers. And so if you hang on to your production, uh, you'll see a price increase at some point in time. And no one can predict when that is. But mm-hmm. as we talked about before, there will be a need for crude oil for 20 more years, longer. I mean, I think demand will peak and then you'll have a nice, you know, gentle decline to where it, it becomes, you know, like coal is doing, for example, today. And at the same time, natural gas will probably increase a little bit because it obviously has a less carbon footprint. So that's kind of a convoluted answer, but there's a, just a number of different things going on. But it all hmm. comes down to, again, when do, when do renewables and fossil fuels cross over and when does demand peak? And what's the price going to be for fossil fuels at the time? Do you think there's a government role to play back back to World Economic Forum's comment, Robert Boca's comment that there's an opportunity here to kind of reset the table? Do you think that will happen? Is there a Green New Deal that's going to pop up that's going to have some momentum because of this? You know, I was thinking about that before the call. What's interesting is everything we've been talking about has really been industry-led, uh, whether it's renewable industry or investors or banks or oil companies. Everything but uh, some of the tax incentives on um, renewables, uh, mm-hmm. solar and wind, or tax incentives for drilling that still exist. But for now, it's, it seems to be market-driven. I'm not sure that's the right way to do it, but it seems to have worked thus far. You hate to get, at least as an independent oil person, you hate to get the government involved. But at the same time, I do think thoughtful pro- policies which steer the energy writ large business in a certain direction towards carbon neutrality is a good thing. So hopefully we'll have some political will 
some point in time to say, we need a carbon dividend or a carbon tax or whatever you want to call it, but that money must be put into infrastructure for green infrastructure or whatever, you know, it's, it's in some sort of safe, secure fund that doesn't go to the general revenue fund to help this mm-hmm. economy, which is right. big, transition to a more green economy. I think that, I don't think that's going to happen just merely by market. I do think it'll have to take some policies, government policies to do that. Yeah, Sanjeev, to your point, I mean, there could be incentives to get more electric cars and electric infrastructure on the roads, right? If that were a way to both meet a uh, renewable energy or decarbonization agenda and restart the economy in sort of a, you know, FDR type model. Right. And, you know, I always remind people, if you if you see where solar actually took traction, the country that really um, led the whole explosion of solar was, of all places, Germany. And it was the, the feed-in tariffs, the, the government incentive that led people to adopt more solar. And in the U.S., we have seen things like the investment tax credit, We've got the renewable standards, and in California, certainly you've got the cap and trade and other policies that have played a really big role in in, uh, making the economics more financeable, more bankable. So I I think until renewables prices come down to the degree, and it's, it's happening, it's happening on a daily basis where renewables are cost competitive without subsidy. But, you know, it's my personal feeling that the government support is going to be continue to be needed in, in certain areas until the prices can come down where where renewables can stand on their own two feet. Mm, very interesting. I'm just going to say, I think the, the after COVID, now that we've seen what, you know, massive carbon reduction, uh, greenhouse gas reduction does in a period of, what, four months to around the world, I think once people get their no longer paralyzed by COVID and come out of this, and realize there there is a solution to clean green world. I think more and more people, as a public society, will demand not only of companies but also of government to do more to to begin mm-hmm. making this progress to more of a carbon neutral environment and a green a greener planet, whatever that may mean. It means a lot of different things. But well, I mean, one of the counter arguments that is though, however, uh, if you're you know a developing country in Africa or a developing country in Asia, you still have to have opportunity for your for your population and that that those opportunities take energy and how do you get there how do you get there if it's you can't do it on the backs of purely renewables there's got to be some fossil fuels involved and so you would hope again through multilateral treaties and multilateral agencies that there be a, a cleanish clean as possible uh solution for some of those energy issues you know there's in africa for example in asia and there's still talk about the billion of pe- one billion people who still lack electricity in africa I mean, that's terrible but how do you get there? Yeah, you you, you beat me to the question. I, I was exactly going to ask that. You know, does this present an opportunity to, because capital is going to need to find a place to go. And, you know, Africa is, you know, an, an incredible opportunity for capital and developing infrastructure to drive growth. The question is, you know, what will that capital need to, you know, go there and, what kind of energy will it be backing and what can the world do through some sort of global program, perhaps, you know, United Nations style to incentivize the right type of energy being built in these developing countries? What's your take, Sanjeev? You're, you're absolutely right. I, I think it, it does take some stable policies 
in countries. I think, you know, whether it's an oil and gas investment or a renewable investment, you know, these are projects that need 10 years, 15 years of stable, predictable returns for an investor to put their um, their, their their dollars in, their investments in. So I, I think a, a more uh, a stable uh, economic fiscal policy surrounding the energy policy, I think, is a is a very important element to get the investors to get the confidence and invest in certainly in certain emerging economies, such as in uh, in Africa. I think from an energy standpoint, I think that's right, and I think coming out of this with this demand shock, countries who are have an open door policy or open arms to let's say oil and gas exploration who are using that, hoping that they'll one create jobs and great opportunities if oil and gas are discovered, may realize that the industry is now turning its backs on those opportunities. And so there may be a, a time where, where they need to realize, uh, again, whether it's the African Development Bank or World Bank or others, private investors, mm-hmm. that we need to shift our mix. We need to shift our view towards more renewables. At the same time, we just may have to build a gas-fired power plant to make this work and import some LNG or LPGs or something. Uh, so there's going to be, a, to me, this sort of period of really looking at different avenues, different ways to to handle this energy crisis, if you will, in Africa. Because, again, they've got to create the jobs and opportunity to, to keep those countries stable. No question about it. And, and that's what's going to drive the growth, right? You need infrastructure to drive the growth of these countries. Right. And so it, it will be interesting to see what happens in and the how coming years. how do you make years. that sustainable? Right. That's right. Exactly right. Without some strange, you know government incentive or third party coming in and giving loans, you know, that will be difficult to pay off. And when something that's really sustainable, that ultimately becomes a true asset for the country in the long term. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Right. Well, gents, we've come to the end of our time. This has been a fascinating discussion. Interesting perspectives shared both in the oil space and renewables. I think the renewable side certainly offers some very great possibilities And I think it feels like at least this crisis could illuminate how best to realize those in a very short period of time. So we'll see. Thanks for coming to the show, Bill. Sanjeev, always a pleasure to have you. And Phil, let's get back to work. Thanks for listening. You can find more information on what you've heard today in our show notes. To join our growing community, connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for Saluna and following our corporate page. Or tag us on Twitter. We're at Saluna Holdings. To learn more about Saluna and our innovative projects, visit our website at salunacomputing.com. And visit our blog, Clean Integration, on Medium. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps boost us in the charts and others to find us. Thank you for listening to Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. And remember, computing is a better battery. See you next time.